Nothing Never Happens. I'm here with Dr. Stephen Brookfield, who is the John Ireland Endowed Chair at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, he has written 18 books and many, many articles, is a consultant, and they will, there will be a lot of material that I and links that I, and resources that I put on the website, um, tinapippin.org. Uh, so welcome, Professor Brookfield. Thank you, and um, if you don't mind, I'd prefer if you call me Stephen, if that's okay. Okay, Tina. that's great. Thanks. Um, I, although, you know, that's a very, I've realized working in multiracial groups, mm -hmm. that that is a very white thing to do, um, and in a sense is a manifestation of white privilege, because um, a lot of my colleagues of color have told me, you know, we, we would like to be called doctor, because in using that title, uh, in academe anyway, th this acknowledges the fact that we've struggled to attain this status. And, you know, uh, it's easy for you to abandon your privilege when, um, uh, you know, in an attempt at supposed form and for informality. And, you know, you think that, Stephen, by asking us to use your first name, you're creating some kind of um, powerless vacuum. And in fact, that's not the case. So, so even as I say, please call me Stephen, Tina, I, I, I realize that that's a very problematic thing to do. So my tortured brain is <laughs> yeah. going over this stuff all the time, as I'm sure yours is too, and, oh, yeah. and, and many of the listeners as well. Yes, I'm glad you said that, because I have uh, many colleagues, especially um, uh, women, who tell me uh, if they're uh, from outside the United States in particular, but if they're African-American, uh, women of scholars who say, you know, they, for good reason, they have to use titles. Um, yeah. We, uh, we struggle with that in, in our department, um, but we have to give uh, social location um, the heavy hand there on most yeah. of the time. Uh, so I appreciate you saying that because that is a real issue and it's, it's debated in the literature right now. Um, yeah. So I want to um, start by asking you uh, about your story uh, for getting into teaching, because you've been teaching since around 1970. And yep. um, so what's the story of how you decided to become a teacher? What were well, the you know, uh, influences? Yeah, I suspect that, um, like a lot of people, I actually didn't make make any conscious decision initially to do that. I, I wanted to be, uh, well, I wasn't sure, maybe a journalist, maybe uh, some kind of social or community worker. <clears throat> and um, so I was doing some graduate study in London. I grew up in England and didn't come to the States till the early 80s. And so um, uh, I needed some money to, to pay my rent and, and uh, 
you know, support myself in grad study and because I didn't get a grant for it. And so I started teaching part-time, uh, you know, as an adjunct and, um, and really found that particularly working with adults, um, I, I just love that experience. And so, you know, that's when I started thinking, well, maybe, maybe this is something that I, I could do. But, um, you know, my dad, is uh, was a very working class guy. Never never graduated school or got any qualifications, and um, and I just uh, felt that well, teaching isn't real work, you know, because you don't produce anything. Yeah. There's no material artifact at the end of it, and so so all the time I've been in teaching, I've had this voice inside me saying, you know, you're not doing real work. Hmm. You're, um, you're, you're, you know, you're getting paid for doing fake work, mm-hmm. and um, and I realize that's the working class part of my dad's identity talking. My mom was from a very upper middle class mm-hmm. background, and uh, and they met during the war, so I grew up in a really interesting household, and and we were. I was born in a very working class area, but my mom always had this. Um, different set of class values and and so um so i i really kind of fell into teaching um but that that idea that i'm i'm uh, not doing a real job is is one i don't think i'll ever i'll ever lose and yet at the mm-hmm. same time you know we have these contending voices within us and i feel like yeah but this this is good work and you are yeah. to use that hackneyed cliched phrase making a difference Mm-hmm. And so, um, so you know, I, I really should be retired officially by now, but I'm just okay. enjoying what I do so much, particularly working with younger colleagues mm-hmm. um, that uh, that I'm I'm still kind of uh, employed in in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you know, I I kind of fell in it, and there was no particular mentor who said you should be a teacher or this would be a good thing for. In fact, I'm a very, very strong introvert, mm-hmm. and so the first year of my teaching, um, you know, I would be full of tension and anxiety, and, and uh, you know, want to throw up before class, and 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 it was just a real um, a battle for me. And if I hadn't had to pay rent, yeah. needed to get money, I I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have lasted that first year, and so I would look at people around me who've been mm-hmm. doing it, you know, for years. And I think, how, how can you even mm-hmm. do five years, let alone ten, or a whole career? Yeah. This just seems so stressful. So, um, so, and then as I, when I got further into um, my first fully adult education job, four years into my teaching, my title was actually lecturer, slash organizer. So I felt more comfortable with that. It's a weird Mm -hmm. designation, but it comes sort of from the Workers' Educational Association in England where Mm -hmm. the idea is you may may work in a college, but you're actually doing some group organizing in the community outside. So so that was a great fit for me, and and I did that for a few years. working with community groups and then Maggie Thatcher came to power and and um, started 
you know, defunding that kind of thing. And so eventually I was fired. Um, and a university in Canada, the University of British Columbia, kind of asked me out of the blue, do you want to be a one-year visiting mm -hmm. professor? Yeah. And I'd sworn I would never work in a university because I felt they were out of mm -hmm. touch. Mm -hmm. But then I got to Canada <clears throat> and I found that the notion of a university was much more outward looking in North America mm -hmm. than it was in the UK where it was much more about exclusion. Um, you know, uh, so I thought, oh, this is really much more along my lines. And so that's, that's kind of how I ended up in the university mm -hmm. sector is because basically I'm a Thatcher political refugee. She closed mm -hmm. down my program, not her directly, but her policies. Yeah. And I fell into the university and found it wasn't as bad as I imagined. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm still there. Yeah. Well, what was your greatest joy at the beginning of teaching university students in, um, and, and in the States in particular, when you finally uh, started to settle into this as, as a vocation? Well, I, I think the greatest joy, um, gosh, that's a great question. Um, my interactions with them, um, I, I try to run the classrooms in, as I always have done, in broadly speaking as democratic a way as possible, mm -hmm. and I encourage their critique of me. Um, mm -hmm. But it was the first time I had to negotiate this weird power um, dynamic of, of having positional institutional authority behind you and being in the position of having to grade students' work while at the same time um, working in a way that was hopefully collegial and collaborative and deliberately creating opportunities for every person to be heard in the classroom and not to have dominant individuals mm -hmm. shut each other down. I mean, it was all the stuff I'd done in, in community settings. Yeah. But in community settings, I didn't have the power of the grade. So now I'm getting paid to mm -hmm. give grades and to decide whether students go should go forward in the program and and then whether they should you know be allowed to do dissertation work and, and all that kind of thing yeah. and so that was a a dynamic that I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and as you say that's that's been one of my enduring interests is and you know I was just grading papers this morning and and I'm dealing with some students for whom English isn't the first language. Yeah. And so I'm in this position of knowing that English as the, the dominant mode of written expression, standard, you know, English English or American English mm -hmm. is required. So if someone wants to write a dissertation, they need to know as early as possible that this is how they're going to be assessed. But then how can I do that in a way um, that, to use Freire's words, is authoritarian, authoritative, excuse me, rather than authoritarian. Mm -hmm. So how do I exercise that power in a way that's not seen as, as um, completely exclusionary and oppressive? And it probably often is by the student, but, but my rule of thumb is that it's my job, honestly, to let people know as early as possible um, what lies ahead, and I just hate to see students pass through with, you know, decent passing grades, and then they get to the final stage of 
of, of doing a major project mm-hmm. and they, they just fail or fall by the wayside because no one has actually given them honest feedback about the need yeah. really to focus on this stuff. Mm-hmm. So until we can write dissertations in um, Ebonics or dialect mm-hmm. or, or I know there was a university, uh, university of British Columbia allowed a dissertation as one whole sentence with no, um, no punctuation. Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, until we're in that situation, I'm, I'm, I'm in a sense of the power structure mm-hmm. and caught within it while I'm trying to subvert and open that structure up to question an alternative modalities and so on. I apologize. I'm going on and on and no, on and on. No, I'm sorry. This is the, the dilemma that we have to negotiate if we're interested in student-centered classrooms or um, in creating um, brave enough spaces in our classes uh, that we hold. There is a power imbalance. It's always there. And how do we have checks and balances on that power? Uh, so, so, so how do you how do you manage that yourself? Yeah. Well, uh, class agreements, you know, the usual things, and some of these you talk about in your books. Um, uh, class agreements, theater of the oppressed, uh, methodology in, in certain situations more. Uh, and I do want to talk to you about the aesthetic um, part of, of how you have evolved in your own teaching Um the book with Allison James, uh, you yeah. know, uh, kind of, you know, mixing up method, uh, pedagogical methodologies to fit different learning styles uh, to create, I think you talk about this in that book, um, an element of surprise, um, you know, and get students out of the, um, uh, what, you know, we've, we've been talking about Paula Freire a little bit, uh, of the banking model that students are, empty uh, recipients of the sage Mm. on the stage's knowledge and they learn from the chin up and, you know, all of that. Uh, that, Yeah. You know, it's it's an embodied uh, educational practice. Um, Yeah, one thing I will say that we we do, uh, it depends on, you know, student leadership that goes in kind of waves, um, is we have a, a student group that emerged that helps us with um, syllabus. They do a syllabus workshop with, with the classes, uh, the second day of class in the semester, um, where students give input, you know, about at least the first part of the syllabus. Uh, and they do midterm evaluations, and they're, they're available to help us be as democratic as possible. Because, mm. you know, because of the power imbalance, we're going to fail. Uh, and the name of the group yeah. uh, came out of our department, but it's not, it's sort of, we're trying to make it campus-wide, um, which is, uh, it's called Safe Agnes Scott Students, or SAS, which is, great, <laughs> you know, a great Southern women's term, right? Right, right. That's so, great, SAS. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what we're doing. We're going to present next month uh, at the Women and Girls Conference in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia. So we're yeah. always evolving. I mean, of uh, and this this leads me to something that I really appreciate in your work is the critical uh, reflection 
uh, that professors, teachers being self-reflective is so crucial to creating democratic spaces uh, with students. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about uh, self-reflection and uh, also um, some stuff I was reading recently of yours, you know, um, from the critically reflective teacher to um, uh, being, um, you know, going against the tide of the monochromatic approach into a multi-method approach. And what does it take for you to, you know, continue and, and evolve as a, as a critically reflective teacher? Um, I, I, I think what it takes for me um, is to work with as many different people as possible. Mm -hmm. So I, I argue in, in the Becoming a Critically Reflective Teacher book, and, and generally I think this is true of, of any kind of self-critical work, it's really hard to be self-critical on your own. It's, yeah. You know, I just can't, I, I, I can get to some degree I can say to myself, well, what assumptions am I operating under here and what have I missed? Mm -hmm. And I can read and, um, you know, go over in my head um, what I did yesterday. But I really need um, other people with me to ask me questions, to point things out to me mm -hmm. that I'm um, doing too much or not doing enough of, particularly questions I'm not asking perspectives on a situation I've not um, ever really considered seriously. And that's why I am such a strong believer in team teaching. I really mm -hmm. feel that it's the um, optimal experience, yeah. but not just for students, because it certainly is, because they, they get to see faculty modeling some kind of critically respectful discourse in front of them. Um, but also for us as teachers, you know, it's, uh, um, that's where I really get opened up and, um, questioned and, uh, and, and, and I, I just, I'm a very, very strong believer in that. But of course, institutionally, um, we, we you know, even state universities and nonprofits run along capitalist lines. So you're always looking to keep the the labor budget as low as possible. And so if you team teach, we've been told, you know, that if we team teach, we only get half a course. Yeah. If it's yeah. team teaching with one person, and it'll be a third of a course if you team teach with two. Mm -hmm. So um, institutionally, you are hammered for doing the best pedagogy, which, which uh, you know, is one of the many unsurprising contradictions um, you, you come up against in uh, in organizational life any organization mm -hmm. um, but yeah it it's the external um, question the external perspective the surprise the prompt of some mm -hmm. something being brought to your attention a gap in your own thinking an assumption that you've mm -hmm. um, thought was universally applicable and you realize actually it's much more contextual than you had imagined, and, and for me, you know, working on uh, with increasingly diverse groups in and out of the in and out of academe mm -hmm. um, has been a you know a, over the years. So many of my assumptions I've had to realize were 
highly contextual from my own history and my yeah. my own racial and cultural formation. So, and I think that being critically reflective, which is you know constantly trying to seek out the assumptions you operate under and just check mm -hmm. the degree to which they fit a situation, particularly assumptions about power that you have and um, the hegemonic assumptions that you have internalized, um, that just keeps you alive and alert. I don't, yeah. you know, I think the death of teaching is when you go on automatic pilot <laughs> and you think it's worked out. So I, 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 I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and I was doing a, a workshop that I used to do when I taught back at Teachers College in, in New York City and, and I, so I, I said to the group, you know, I've been doing this 31 years, this particular workshop, and someone said, well, I don't understand how you can be so interested in, 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 <laughs> in what's going on because, my God, you've done 31 of these, probably twice, so you've done about 60 of these how on earth is there anything new? And I, I know I was yeah. just thinking about that and said, well, it's mm. because I, I try and find out how you're responding. I use a lot of um, things like the criticalness and questionnaire and today's meet as a social, uh, social media back channel. I'm constantly looking for you to surprise me and, and ask questions I've not thought of or point out something that we're doing that's not very productive or that we need to go deeper into. So I, I really regard each each new interaction uh, not totally as a blank slate because you can't, but you know as something where I truly don't know what's going to happen, mm. and so that for me is very important in 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 in, in keeping me engaged. I've never really had any of this post tenure malaise. Um, <laughs> yeah. In my life, and I think that's why. Yeah. And I, in in the becoming a critically reflective teacher book, I really try and argue that point mm -hmm. that um, you know if you do take a serious interest in what's going on in your classrooms, I don't see how you can fail to be engaged. Um, you know, every day. Yeah. Yeah. So this. So um, that's really good words for not only uh, beginning teachers but also more more mid-career and senior as we start to do things that uh, quote work <laughs> and we don't change and create spaces for new um, so a lot of times um, I found faculty very interested in method and tricks and little things they can do in the classroom that are fun. But um, how, how do you um, convince uh, your fellow faculty that uh, it's also about theoretical um, understandings of pedagogical, uh, you know, praxis? It's not just about you know the method, but going deeper into theory that really that really changes things. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting, Gene. I don't know if, if this is true for you, but I've found that at, um, paradoxically, a lot of academics are anti-academic uh, work <laughs> and and yeah. distrust theory unless mm -hmm. they're employed specifically as theoreticians, and um, and. Um, 
you know, in my own self-identity, if I have to choose on on the false dichotomy continuum of theorist and practitioner, because you can't mm -hmm. separate them. But I, you know, I tend to think of myself more as a practitioner. Mm -hmm. I am actually intrigued with different methods and activities that I can try. I love to go somewhere and, and see someone do something or read about a new approach and think, how yeah. can I um, adapt that? And so that's why in my own work, I just pepper it with, um, you know, the, the practical examples because I would really appreciate that as a teacher. And I've got critiqued from colleagues on the left who say that actually giving practice is itself a, a contradiction in Frarian terms because really the practices hmm. should be invented from the grassroots upward with uh -huh. the group. And I understand that critique, but I also feel you have to kind of start where people are. And so if people are hungry for techniques, then you, yeah. you, you kind of begin with that mm -hmm. and then work backward to the reasoning behind it because every time I introduce a, a particular thing that I really like, um, like using a social media back channel, let's say, I do that all the yeah. time now with a tool called Today's Meet, um, I will link this as I'm introducing it to the learning that we're uh, intended to be engaged in and I will say the reason I'm doing this is one of them to the students is so that I can better understand uh, what problems you're facing in facing right now in the moment what questions you have as they occur to you to make sure that introverts get an opportunity to be involved yeah. in the classroom to, for those for whom English isn't the first language to give them time to think and formulate a question and then post it on this social media feed so I, I, I will explain the process to okay. students and then in a staff meeting I you know typically people say, uh, well, how do I get more students to participate? Or yeah. how do I make sure that we don't, um, you know, just get on one line of analysis? And, and Or how do we avoid getting distracted and going off into the ether? And, and I'll say, well, one method I found useful is A or B. And, 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 and here's mm -hmm. the reasons why I think it works so well. So I will frame this in, I suppose, what you'd call, in Sternberg's sense, practical theory. I would not go to Marcuse or Freire as I'm explaining it, because people don't want to hear that right now. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. But then, after a little while, I'll say, well, you know, um, actually, what this technique tries to do is practice what Marcuse called liberating tolerance. Or and, and here's a piece you might want to read on that, or this is an attempt um, to borrow the distinction from Freire to be authoritative rather than authoritarian. And, you know, there's a nice book that he did with Ira Shaw, who I know yeah. you featured, yeah. um, and who I've learned a lot from, um, that explores this, this particular um, distinction. Mm -hmm. So with colleagues, it's working back from the thing they're hungry for to some of the thinking behind it. And really, I think that's a good principle of community work. You can't come in with, well, you need to know this. You have to, yeah. clearly, as Miles Horton and, and so many others said, you start where people are. It's a very Dewey and 
progressive tenet, and then you work to take them beyond where they are. But you can't go straight mm -hmm. to beyond where they are um, yeah. without building that connection. So, I mean, it's such an obvious, commonsensical dynamic to understand. But, but I think that I, like everybody else, forgets this. I have an idea I really want to disseminate because I think mm -hmm. it's so crucial. And I forget that unless people are at a point of learning readiness to hear it, yeah. and particularly unless it's connected into a pressing concern mm -hmm. that they're facing right now, that they're not going to pay attention. I find this a lot with work around anti-racism, which I'm involved mm -hmm. with a, a lot these days. Yeah. And, you know, m many of my white colleagues don't see that there's a problem and it's not surfacing in their eyes in their classroom because they're dealing with all white students so so there's no real need to look at this so I have to find a way of building a connection and I'll do this mostly through stories and narrative and uh, autobiographical disclosure rather than coming in and saying you need yeah. to read hmm. you know um this op-ed in the New York Times or, or you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That concludes part one of our interview with Professor Stephen D. Brookfield, in which he talks about being a critically reflective teacher and about his mentors and influences. In part two, We'll be investigating the social justice roots of his educational theory.